This episode of And You Believe That is brought to you by uh, Squarespace. Uh, do you have a, a website idea um, or maybe a blog or an online portfolio? Uh, use Squarespace. Welcome to And You Believe That. I'm here with Pierce Campion, who is going to be talking about bicameralism. Hey, Pierce. Hey, Jordan. Hey, so what authority do you have to speak about this topic? I have read the only book on bicameralism. Okay, do you think you could write a pamphlet on bicameralism? That would be pretty good. Yeah, I, I think um, I have uh, edited maybe two paragraphs in the, in the Wikipedia page, which is how I found out about it in the first place. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, so now I'm on the Wikipedia page right now, and it says, The neutrality of this article is disputed. Mm. Relevant discussion may be found on the talk page, etc. So do you think you have something to do with the neutrality of the article being disputed? Uh, I, have, I have visited the, the talk page, and uh, it's a lot of people complaining about the, the article uh, seemingly having been written by people who haven't actually read the mm. book that bicameralism is based off of. Um, I, think, I think the book was, was fairly popular in the 70s. Mm -hmm. The book is by Julian James. It's called uh, The Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind or The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Uh, and ever since the, like, I guess late 70s, people haven't really been reading the book a whole lot. So, okay. I mean, I think, I don't know if people are still reading the book today, yeah. but I know that, like, it's probably just a word-of-mouth thing at this point. Sure. Um, so then, can you just explain briefly what bicameralism is yeah. in its briefest form? Yeah. So, uh, the bicameral theory of mind uh, says that consciousness as we know it, uh, and as, you know, there's a lot of different definitions of consciousness that he mm -hmm. lays out in the first chapter. Like, some people define consciousness as just being cognizant in mm -hmm. general, um, that, like, you know, you, you go out of consciousness for anesthesia or whatever, mm -hmm. but uh, what he defines consciousness as pretty specifically is, um, like, thinking about thought, like, mm -hmm. like a sort of meta-consciousness. Right. Um, and he says that the origin of meta-consciousness is about, uh, happened about 3,000 years ago, uh, and up until that point... Uh, there was a, a bicameral mind in that the, uh, the corpus callosum wasn't really mitigating the two hemispheres of the brain, um, and that people were uh, having auditory hallucinations that originated in, I think, the right hemisphere mm -hmm. that was heard by the left hemisphere. Um, and uh, it's sort of like just uh, an instinctual uh, command that was externalized as like a verbal command. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that comes from, like, the instinctual part of your brain that's then internalized. Um, and it, that, that relationship resembles the, uh, the God and the man mm -hmm. dynamic. Right. So in these two chambers, they were separate, but it's not like they were cut off from each other. It's still... S How does that compare to what people would understand consciousness to be today? Right. Uh, yeah, I guess he, he... It's not really a scientific essay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's more of a psychological essay. There's uh -huh. not a whole lot of neuroscientific claims that he makes. Um, but the difference between uh, this kind of ancient, antiquated uh, uh, mind and uh, the more modernized consciousness uh, is that people were sort of automatons, like mm -hmm. not, not really cognizant of their own behaviors in an introspective way or in the way that... Uh, 
we sort of narratize our own experience now Mm -hmm. as like a present, past, future uh, sort of uh, continuum. It was really just living in the moment uh, to such an extent that if you were confronted with like novel stimuli, something that you had never experienced before, like if you ran into someone who you had never met before, uh, your, your instinct like, the, the instinctive part of your brain would basically just scream at you whether or not this person was trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't have the sort of agency that, that we have come to uh, develop, uh, which he doesn't really describe as true agency. Mm-hmm. He sort of uh, describes the utility of consciousness as being kind of fleeting. Um, consciousness doesn't really uh, affect anyone in any meaningful mm-hmm. way. It just sort of... Uh, informs our sense of reality, right. not necessarily our behavior. Yeah, so in this theory was used to sort of explain how things like the Iliad and the Odyssey could mm-hmm. exist today, right? Yeah, uh, that's probably the biggest part of the text is uh, he, instead of, you know, developing a neuroscientific theory, mm-hmm. because we don't have any neuroscientific evidence of, yeah. of the uh, chemistry of the brain back then, but... Uh, he doesn't even really delve into non-fictional texts. Uh, he, he delves into mythological texts um, from ancient times. So uh, a lot of ancient Egyptian writings, a lot of ancient Greek writings, there's, there's sort of this big lie that's happening, he, he insinuates, mm-hmm. uh, when, we, when we look at these ancient texts and we sort of project uh, a, a modernist lens onto it. Mm-hmm. So... A lot of people would say that the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, are metaphorical texts, yeah. like like allegorical stories, um, and that when uh, Achilles hears the voice of a god, that's just a mythological rendering of like an actual decision point. But he suggests that in ancient Greece, you know, you have all these cults for different gods. You have, uh, in, similar to many other ancient societies, like a pantheon. Of, of different anthropomorphic gods that represent different parts of the human experience. Mm-hmm. He says that that's not a metaphor. People in that time actually right. heard voices and they built idols so that they could all experience uh, collectively the like these designated mm-hmm. uh, uh, like embodiments of the human experience. So yeah, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, he suggests, are like literal interpretations of right. the experience. But even if they weren't metaphor then... It's only because people interpreted those events as real that metaphor exists in the first place. Right? Yeah, and he talks about the the origin of the metaphor because a metaphor, as we know it, is impossible without language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, you know, also suggests that consciousness, as we know it, is impossible without language. Auditory hallucinations are are fairly impossible without language. Um, but the ability to metaphorize something, like there's a whole chapter about metaphors where he tries to explain like the 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 concept of a metaphor from like a bicameral perspective, mm-hmm. um, and he suggests that before the origin of consciousness, there was no metaphorizing. You couldn't say that one thing represents another because that that uh, implies that you can, and this is probably the the most heady part of the text that mm-hmm. I still don't quite understand that there's some kind of delineation between the analog I and the metaphor me. Um, and he, I think, says that the, 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 the conceptualization of the analog I is the first thing that happens, and that's been happening before the Bronze Age collapse. But after the Bronze Age collapse, the metaphor me 
which I guess it has something to do with introspection and, mm-hmm. and narratization of your own experience, uh, uh, abled or enabled people to sort of think of their own experience as something that they themselves had control over. Yeah. I guess I'm just... When I've looked into it very briefly, I don't entirely understand it. The thing that I really don't get is how it seems like there would have to be some sort of immediate split between the before and after of bicameralism. This doesn't seem like a thing, although it would have to have been a sort of gradual evolution to Mm -hmm. our consciousness today. It seems like you either are able to be an introspective person or you're not. Yeah. Um, He... He cites some evidence of, of studies uh, with chimpanzees um, uh, in the, the, I guess the study is looking for uh, deceit in chimps. Mm-hmm. Like, can chimps think one thing and present themselves in another way? Mm-hmm. Because he suggests that there's an evolutionary advantage mm-hmm. to deceit. Yeah. So say, you know, say your village is, is being pillaged and raped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're either, you know, taken as a slave, uh, or, you know, your life is threatened in some way. Can you present yourself as submitting to this new authority, or are you going to express, you know, your, you know, your inner truth? Are you going to, uh, uh, present yourself as a threat and then, uh, likely endanger your, your own life? Mm-hmm. If you can present yourself as submissive, uh, you will increase your chances of survival. So there has to be at a certain point, like when, you know, these empires are starting to conquer more lands, when colonization is becoming mm-hmm. a big thing, when all these cultures are starting to clash with one another, it becomes of critical importance for the human species to deceive its fellow human. Yeah. And and that's, I think, the... And it is, it is, you're right, you're right in saying that um, it seems like it would have to just happen immediately mm-hmm. or happen so gradually that it wouldn't even be yeah. a real shift at all. Um, but I think the history of it would suggest that at some point uh, these cultures are, are in, and this is, you know, Jared Diamond has that book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, where he talks about how if any two uh, alienated cultures mm-hmm come to one another, it usually ends up in, like, genocide or yeah. slavery. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess the the arrival of certain monotheisms uh, would demand... Uh, I'm sort of getting into a new topic right now, but uh, you can sort of see evidence of what you're talking about, which is, like, these violent, violent, explosive mm-hmm. changes in, in, like, these paradigms. So, uh, in ancient societies, pretty much as a rule, you have pantheons of different gods, Mm -hmm. you have, like, idols, um, you have pretty much, uh, a uniform myth of creation, um, but then with the arrival of these great monotheisms, like, uh, Judaism, later Christianity, later Mm -hmm. Islam, you have, uh, basically this, this genocide of pantheistic Mm -hmm. gods. Right. So, I mean, Moses destroyed all the idols. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, but isn't Moses often talked about as sort of evidence of bicameralism, like with Moses mm-hmm. and the burning bush yep. and all of that? So this would have been near the end. Like, he yep. would have been one of the last generations of people who were fully in it. Yeah, and I, I guess one of the more problematic uh, uh, presuppositions of bicameralism is that 
all of the great spiritual leaders of all our time were were um, like schizophrenic. Right. They they. And I mean, you have this in pretty much every society where there's like shamanism. Um, you have it in these Melanesian tribes where like the the leader of ev- any given group is going to be the one that experiences the most hallucinations mm-hmm. because they are seen to be in touch with yeah. the spiritual world. Um, we, uh, I guess I missed it, but you and I are in a comedy troupe, mm-hmm. um, and we, I guess, had a party that I, that I didn't attend where you guys conducted a seance. We did. Yeah. Yeah, and that, there was definitely something, I mean, of course, like, we were all pretending, but also feeling, mm-hmm. and there was definitely some sort of connection right. that we were all sharing in. Yeah. And there was something there that I think can't just be explained by it was a party and we were just being yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Um, he talks about uh, this collective cognitive imperative, mm-hmm. um, which is basically what he uses to explain um, these massive... Uh, uh, congregations, like, you know, in, uh, in these sort of, I, I guess I don't know what to call them, but like when a, when a pastor like brings people on yeah. stage and like heals them and it, yeah. it sort of looks like a hypnosis mm-hmm. act. Yeah. Uh, he also talks about hypnosis, yeah. but, um, he, he talks about what we have in modern society that sort of, uh, uh, resembles, yeah. uh, a throwback to the bicameral right, some age. sort of remnant, like part of us that maybe wants to sort of just play and just yeah. be in that for a little bit. Yeah, and and yeah, I guess you could call the the aspect of playing as narrowing your mm-hmm. consciousness yeah. to to a very specific focal point. Mm-hmm. Um that's what would enable uh these these young women, these oracles in ancient Greece uh to sort of be divinely inspired mm-hmm. uh you know, go say the go on to these like long diatribes where they are not conscious, and then mm-hmm. afterward not remember what they said. Um, everyone in ancient Greece, like, walking miles and miles and miles to see this young girl, I guess, speak on behalf of the gods. Uh, the thing that happened before those speeches was this, this like, ceremony, this ritual, mm-hmm. where, where, you know, she would be dressed in certain uh, plants, she would, uh, I guess, smell certain vapors, um, that isn't to put her in a more hallucinogenic state because they didn't have a concept of, like, hallucination. Right. All it was doing was sort of narrowing her consciousness so that uh, there wasn't a whole lot of, like, noise in her mm-hmm. head so that she could focus on one individual thing. The, the truth is, if you're called up on stage by a pastor, if you're called up on stage by a hypnosis, mm-hmm. if you are asked to perform uh, in some way that separates you from your own agency in front of a group of people, a hundred times out of a hundred, you're going to perform. You're going, you're not going to just go, I'm not feeling it today. Mm -hmm. And that's what he, he says that that's another, uh, sort of aptic structure is that, uh, people are going to want to impress or, or not let down their, their peers, um, in that way. Right. Um, does the book say anything about how daily life could even exist if everyone was like this. I mean, I understand that it would just be their reality, and to those individuals, it wouldn't seem crazy. But to a certain extent, it does seem like it would be impossible for societies and cultures to build and to go through so much 
evolution and build these civilizations while everyone's hallucinating yeah. and imagining talking to these gods. Yeah. Um, I think what he would, what he posited is that you weren't, it, it's not like you were constantly bogged down by voices in right. the way that a schizophrenic is today. Yeah. And I, I guess I should mention that he makes this pretty bold statement that uh, the schizophrenic mind is an ancient sort of mm -hmm. mind. It's, it's a relic to the bicameral era where people were hearing voices all the time. He says that schizophrenics are waiting for gods in a godless world. There's a lot of books about auditory hallucinations mm -hmm. and how modern culture, like urbanized culture, sort of uh, accentuates schizophrenic symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, people who have hallucinations in the modern time say that it is, it is sort of a constant barrage uh, and that, you know, there's other theories that the, the world we live in suppresses voices, suppresses our experience with God. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting because it doesn't sound that way at all, that, that it could be that anyone could have an organized society where, where everyone's experience is so automatic, mm -hmm. um, where, where people can't actually, like, live as themselves in new situations. He says that the, the building of the Great Pyramids can be explained by bicameralism. He's like, how, how is it that uh, a group of quote-unquote like ancient schizophrenics could build these marvelous, marvelous structures? And then he says, well, have you ever noticed how tireless schizophrenics are? There you go. Like, just, <laughs> just that they, they, they all had this, this amazing broad goal in mind, and they were just tirelessly pursuing it for years and years and years. Um, it, it's, it's strange because, uh, he doesn't really go into detail about how you can have all this infrastructure in mm -hmm. these societies. And I guess the, the counter argument isn't that he's saying that people are, are ill mm -hmm. in any way, just that their experience, uh, was not their own, um, isn't to say that, like, they were actually being controlled by anything. Yeah. I mean, the, the voices and the commands and the hallucinations are coming from within them. It's not mm -hmm. like as if they're being manifested uh, in the external world. So they are truly in control. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they're being conditioned. There's, a, there's still a nature versus nurture argument to be made. Like, they are still individuals, and, you know, some of them are smart, some mm -hmm. of them are less smart. Mm -hmm. You have political leaders, but I think you're always going to have politics. You're always going to have, like, someone in control. Right, and that's just what confuses me about this because it doesn't seem like there would be the personality type that would want to be a leader that would... Mm -hmm. And it, I just don't understand, like, how they would even be able to rise to the top without deception and things yeah. like that because it... Yeah, I guess, I guess like, the royal family was has always been a thing in mm -hmm. ancient cultures. Um... Uh, democracy is a is a very very new mm -hmm. institution to to humankind, um, but he has he has a few chapters about the god king relationship. Okay. Um, the thing of it is, like the leaders of these societies were gods, and mm -hmm. if they weren't gods, they were kings that had a direct relationship with God. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have countless depictions of pharaohs in mm -hmm. in ancient Egypt. Uh, where they have an actual visual relationship with yeah, ancient Egyptian gods. Uh, you have countless myths in ancient Greece where uh, emperors and other Greek leaders 
uh, are said to be descended from gods. They're mm-hmm. they're actual heroes. I mean, the the whole uh, story of the Trojan War has countless uh, uh, descendants from gods as main characters. So, uh, and I guess there is some truth to that. Like that's not that's not necessarily deception. If someone claims to be the the son or daughter of a of a god or goddess, mm-hmm. that's if they truly believe that right. it's because they they are there's something in them that authentically represents what is mm-hmm. an authentic human experience sure yeah I, and i guess just what's most baffling to me about all of this is that so much of what i think it means to be a human and not a lesser being mm-hmm. is none of that seems to be included in how humans needed to exist in uh-huh. being by uh, enduring bicameralism because like the idea of being introspective and understanding yourself and writing and using metaphor, just yeah. sort of modern understanding seems to, that seems to me to just be an inherent part of being a human. Right. And I guess I just don't understand how people were still pretty close to being what they are now. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I, I had never really considered how quickly humankind became conscious. I mean, I mm-hmm. knew that, that we... Uh, are are very close, uh, closely related to to common chimpanzees mm-hmm. and pygmy chimpanzees, uh, and I know that we separated about like five hundred thousand years mm-hmm. ago. Um, I'm just trying to to imagine like what what would a hunter gatherer society look like? I mean, you you have people coming around a fire at the end of the day and gossiping, mm-hmm. talking about their their fellow man, yeah. um, and there's a whole argument to be made about how you know. That is what language was for, for, for mm-hmm. the most part, was gossiping. People mm-hmm. were talking about other people in their tribe mm-hmm. when they weren't there. Um, and you can, you can explain, basically, the, the idea of someone always watching over you with gossip. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you can act in a, in a moral... If, if you can act morally, even though there's no one watching, mm-hmm. then you're protected from, you're, you're protected from like a poor reputation later mm-hmm. on. Like, if someone witnesses you acting immorally uh and then talks about it then your reputation will be worsened you may not be able to procreate if you act as if someone's always watching you like uh, a god any Mm -hmm. kind of like intervening spiritual force then you will be well received within your tribe so Mm it's it's just strange to think that any primal society can can come to the point of like decadence and luxury where they don't actually have to think about viscera right. and the real world around yeah. them and sort of think conceptually about metaphors mm-hmm. and stuff. You sort of have to have a society where where the elite are so taken care of that they can just sit around all day and think. Yeah. And you know, that is what ancient Greece was. I mean, it was a it was a, a society where where the the bearded intellectuals were the absolute elite they could sit around and write and talk all mm-hmm. day um and the rest of the economy was taken care of by slave la- slave labor yeah. like i i guess that's what it comes down to is every society has some kind of endpoint where like this sort of moral decadence is reached and that's when like the real thinking starts but that real thinking is kind of venomous. Like, it, it really mm-hmm. does separate you from reality. Right. Uh, so this this whole theory, it just seems so yes or no. Yeah. Um, like, every 
this is either com somehow completely all true or it's not. Yeah. But do you think there's a realistic possibility that he was on to something here and we're just not quite sure what that was? And I, just what do you think that would be? Yeah, I mean, the book has a lot of flaws, mm -hmm. uh, especially coming from any sort of scientific perspective. You mm -hmm. would demand more evidence from mm -hmm. him. Um, and, and, and I think it works incredibly well as a thought piece like mm -hmm. hey just don't take your way of thinking for granted i right. mean like every other aspect of the human body and the human experience it is years and years and years of like evolutionary chiseling mm -hmm. um uh that that made it happen i guess i do think he was onto something i i was researching just uh i'm trying to remember I was just in a Wikipedia hole one mm -hmm. day over the summer, and I was researching something called the God Helmet that uses these uh, sort of weak magnetic forces to stimulate the corpus callosum mm -hmm. and sort of separate your two hemispheres, and a lot of people say they experience a god. Mm -hmm. Just with, like, magnets, this, the, the strength of refrigerator magnets right. applied to your brain mm -hmm. can simulate a spiritual experience. Um, there's this... Wikipedia article called Third Man Syndrome, which sort of goes into detail about people, like two people who survived like an incredibly traumatic experience against all odds, mm -hmm. and both of them, after the fact, reported that there was a third presence with mm -hmm. them that like helped them through it. Yeah. Um, and I guess I was I was really interested because. I have I have an uncle who has paranoid schizophrenia, and my dad has a lot of stories about like how it just sort of happened mm -hmm. one day. He just sort of lost his mind mm -hmm. and like started occupying a space outside of reality. Um, and uh, I'm just I'm I'm curious about how anyone can explain these these crazy crazy things that were happening in ancient civilizations like human sacrifice right uh uh cannibalism uh like ritualized cannibalism um there's theories that like the introduction of psychedelic drugs is what started this like really profound ritualized behavior it's called the stoned ape theory mm -hmm. um and I, I guess i was looking for what's what's the most like mind-boggling, ludicrous theory for how human consciousness evolved that also isn't, you know, just crazy propaganda for, like, everyone in America to be <laughs> tripping all the time. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I absolutely do think he was onto something. Mm -hmm. I think that we have to really question um, uh, the, way, the way we look at ancient societies because... Mm -hmm. um, you know, we owe we owe every single modicum of progress to uh, how people uh, sort of. You know, we we still study like the texts of Socrates and Plato today, and I mean, they lived. So so yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's just. I would, I would, I'll never forget reading the book. I, I constantly, when I, when I read about history, when I read about uh, third world countries, mm -hmm. I'm thinking th about it through a bicameral theory right. of mind. Could it be as simple as maybe schizophrenia was more widespread, just more widespread, and there were just, yeah. like, not everyone was like this, but it was just 
a fairly common thing, and maybe it just happened to, like, leaders and those types of people yeah. had it more frequently, and then other people who maybe didn't have the sort of mind or worldview, they would just jump off of that and manipulate, and it could be, you know, a combination of human deceit and manipulation and people who genuinely believe or yeah. just felt this. Yeah, I guess... Uh, I, I'd say that that is just as valid of a theory, and I and I bet that Julian Jaynes, had he uh, not had he not been so ambitious, would have suggested mm-hmm. that it, it there it definitely is evidence that schizophrenia was naturally selected mm-hmm. um, in in ancient antiquated times. Uh, like I was saying, the the whole shamanistic society, mm-hmm. um, people really really valuing like leaders who are in touch with the spiritual mm-hmm. world. But, you know, imagine living in a time where all of the agreed-upon leaders were spiritual leaders, like mm-hmm. where, where the people who were governing the masses, the people who were prescribing the generalized reality were schizophrenic, mm-hmm. were, 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 you know, out of touch with reality in a, re- in a, in a real way. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I guess the only the only thing that I would argue is that before industrialization, before all of this like massive massive infrastructure has been installed in the modern world, um, people were in touch with nature in a really real yeah. way. I mean, the kinds of hallucinations that people were having, uh, I think, can be similar to the to the experience of any other mammal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to navigate the natural world. Uh, takes a certain kind of separation from yourself, mm-hmm. uh, and I and I think that, you know, the ability to communicate with language is is definitely uh, underrated, um, and also sort of uh, taken for granted as well, mm-hmm. because language does inform your sense of reality. I mean, that's right. uh, there's this theory that the reason Western thinkers uh, don't think of their future selves as, like, the same person, like, the reason Westerners procrastinate so much, Mm -hmm. the reason I can put off my problems to future Pierce Mm -hmm. and just say that he'll he'll be able to work it out, Um, and the reason why uh, Eastern languages don't really assign a doer to certain actions, Mm -hmm. like... If you broke the chair, I'd go tell everyone that you broke it. Yeah. But if we lived in, uh, you know, if, if we spoke Mandarin, I might say that the chair broke. I, I don't have to assign right. a causer to an action. And there's this whole theory that the reason language has developed in that way is because Eastern agricultural societies were based around rice and you had to cultivate rice every single morning. There is no putting it off until later. Mm-hmm. Whereas Western agriculture is based around you know, don't worry about the crops, uh, except for this, you know, one day you're going to have yeah. to wake up and tend the crops because they're not rice plants. They, they sort of just happen to, uh, it's, it's just like this whole different schedule, but you think about how agriculture defines like on the old social experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, waking up every day to tend the crops is, is how you stay alive. So, I mean, people's experiences were completely based around agriculture. I mean, most, uh, Eastern countries are based around uh, rice plantations. Uh, 
that is not nothing, you know? Like, you really, really have to take that into consideration. What were people doing in their daily lives? How did that inform their language? And then how does that language inform their way of thinking? Right. And I think a lot of the reason this theory seems more ludicrous than it probably really is is simply that there was only one guy who's been advocating this theory so hard. If it were... 20 people of his caliber, mm-hmm. even if there were no more evidence to it, yeah. I th- it would probably be a much more widely accepted and yeah. understood idea. Yeah. And that really has nothing to do with the quality of the theory itself. No, yeah, I, I agree. I There's like a, a semi-companion piece written by uh, this guy, I think Daniel B. Smith is his name. Uh, that could be the name of an Emerson student, um, so... I'm sure we'll it to, is. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to edit that out if I if I misspoke, but uh, it's a common name. It's yeah, it's it's <laughs> yeah Dan Smith, <laughs> um, called Muses, Madmen, and Prophets, and uh, it's sort of got a memoir aspect in addition to like his experiences mm-hmm. as someone who's interested in the auditory hallucination. But he had a dad growing up that could hear voices and was so embarrassed about it that he never told anyone. Um, there's like definitely a, a demonization of anyone who who hallucinates mm-hmm. and hallucination in general, and uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with the popularity of the theory or if it has anything to do with the unwillingness of the psychologist or scientific community to to jump on the bandwagon. Well, to a certain extent, it would be awfully dangerous if, without a lot more research, people started jumping on this theory yeah. because then um, schizophrenia would be sort of it would be lauded in ways yeah. it definitely shouldn't be. Yeah. And that's not to say anything of people who suffer from this, but it's in, you know, they suffer from it. It's yeah. not a thing that... And I feel like if it's demonized right now, we might go too far in the other direction if this theory was just praised without yeah. any sort of further research. I agree. I think I think the, the theory is exciting uh, in terms of schizophrenia because... To this day, we have made little to no progress in, in mm-hmm. the, the actual uh, cause of the disorder in the first mm-hmm. place. Uh, and there's a lot of weird, quirky things about schizophrenia that we still don't understand, um, uh, like how and why the urban environment is, is such a trigger, mm-hmm. um, how and why schizophrenic people seem to have like a distinct body odor that they themselves cannot smell. Uh, like, I, yeah, like, I think... And, I mean, there's a, a lot of, like, you know, mystery surrounding this theory, like whether or not it was actually properly conducted as, a, as an experiment, mm-hmm. but a lot of uh, papers have suggested that, like, all schizophrenics have, like, this sweet-smelling body odor um, that they can't smell in other schizophrenics. And... And, you know, I just feel like as one of the most mysterious and debilitating mental disorders, mm-hmm. like maybe it does take, and it doesn't have to be the bicameral theory of mind, but it's it's one of the only theories that has tried to put schizophrenia in like uh, a psychological and historical perspective. Yeah. Um, so. Um, not that there would be any reason you would have these ideas, but... Have you heard of any other common theories as to the possible root of schizophrenia that seem as valid as bicameralism? Um, other than, you know, 
I, I haven't heard anything about the cause of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. I've heard stuff about, you know, like I was saying, natural selection yeah. um, and, uh, and sort of the, the integration of positive schizophrenic mm-hmm. symptoms into, into tribal societies. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as, like, what, what it could actually represent in mm-hmm. terms of the way our mind is constructed... Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know of, of any theory that that does as much for basically like the integrity of schizophrenia. Like right. like not only was schizophrenia a result of the the separation of the human animal from the other uh, great apes, but it was integral to many of the things that have made us like a higher yeah. species, as you were saying before. Uh, apart from the companion piece you mentioned, do you know of any research that's gone on or is going on uh, to add on to what James has done, or is he really just sort of the lone one out there? Yeah, it's it's kind of disappointing because I feel like this book sort of was written near the end of the countercultural movement, mm-hmm. sort of like the seminal work of young uh young people who are growing up after the cultural, the countercultural movement had sort of ended. There's a lot of uh, articles that are written about how when this book was written, people, I mean, it was a bestseller. People right. were reading this book all the time, but if you, if you had any sense, if you wanted to be a psychologist, you were reading this book, like, under the covers with the flashlight. Right. You, you wouldn't want to be caught uh-huh. reading this book. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it, it's really never recovered from the environment and, and period in which it was published. Um, and I think that a lot of, a lot of his claims are sort of impossible to make Mm -hmm. in, in 2016. Uh, I I think that, you know, as well written and well researched as it is, uh, I think it is, it's a pretty dated text. We've kind of moved, um, and had this like vast, vast paradigm shift in our generation uh, in terms of the way we think about mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book isn't really a text about mental illness. It, it just sort of uh, makes a broad historical evolutionary claim um, and then suggests that there is a remnant of uh, uh, like an alien society in right. modern society yeah. with this one mental illness. And James, he was older when he wrote this, mm-hmm. right? So, like, what had he been doing? Did he put out any work that was maybe less controversial or just more respected work? Or was this sort of his life? This is, yeah, I, I think Jamesian schools of thought yeah. are always about bicameralism. Okay. Um, I think, you know, he he is a psychologist and he is a historian, but I think every single thing that he has researched or been interested in culminated in this 500-page essay. I, I don't know of any work that he has come out with that is this comprehensive um, or this, I guess, recognizable, universally known right. or whatever. Um, yeah, and, and in terms of other books about schizophrenia um, or other books about auditory hallucinations or uh, Jane's reputation in modern society, I... I don't know of anything other than, like, sci-fi novels, yeah. like, like heralded sci-fi novels that touch on bicameralism. Mm-hmm. I think there's a book called Snow Crash and a book called Neuromancer that both talk about the bicameral theory mm-hmm. of mind, but 
I don't know if it interests many other people sure. other than like being a sort of talking point. Yeah. So I think we're just about wrapped up with this conversation, but I would like you to, once we reach 40 minutes here, I'd like you to give your best 60-second pitch for bicameralism as a way of thinking. Okay, cool. Until then, um, I just want to say thank you for having me on. Hey, no problem. All right, 40 minutes. Uh, if you'd like to put uh, the things that you can't truly fathom uh, a human doing into a cultural context, uh, if you are baffled by human sacrifice uh, in ancient Mayan societies, if you are baffled by uh, any number of the uh, claims made by ancient Greeks, if you are confused about whether or not myths were inspired by religious experiment experiences or historical experiences, uh, and if you are curious about, you know, why homes were built with, like, empty rooms for no reason, because the people who built the rooms thought that if they just projected a god into that room, they would live there, why mummification was a thing. Uh, look into bicameralism. It, it pretty much touches on all of that. So you did use uh, two seconds. You left two seconds at the end there. Okay. But that's All okay. right. Can I... Uh, yeah, you get two more seconds. Uh, yeah, you know what? All right. It doesn't uh, matter. You're going to lose some points for that, okay. but that's okay. Um, so otherwise, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I very much enjoyed it. Great. And thank you for listening. I pointed at the computer. <laughs>